Welcome to the CER podcast. This is the third episode of our series on the strategic implications of Brexit on the EU, where I sit down with a different researcher every week to talk about what Brexit would mean for their field of expertise. Today I'm joined by Camino Motera Martinez, a research fellow and Brussels representative for the Center for European Reform, and we're going to talk about justice and home affairs. Uh, I want to start by asking, Britain is not in Schengen, it has only a tentative opt-in to EU police cooperation. Does it make any difference at all if Britain is not in the EU? That's actually a very good question, because everybody knows that the UK has been kind of the enfant terrible of justice mm. and home for a long, long time. It has um, a very special status together with Denmark, mm. by which it can opt in uh, to measures of uh, police and judicial cooperation and other measures of uh, well, criminal law and the likes. Um, and despite of that, the UK has been one of the leading forces behind some of the most important policies uh, within justice and home affairs. And I'm talking about counter-terrorism, I'm talking about uh, counter-radicalization, aviation security and some other things that maybe we'll talk about um, afterwards. Um, so it would actually make a difference uh, for the European Union if the UK left in the area of just home affairs because they would lose one of their leading partners in actually getting policies uh, together. So you mentioned that the UK has an opt-in into some justice and home affairs measures. Could you give an example? Yes, one of them um, is uh, Europol. Mm -hmm. Another one that our, our uh, listeners might know uh, is Eurojust. So mm -hmm. Europol obviously is the European Police Agency. Eurojust is the Judicial Coordination Agency of the European Union. And another one is very, very well known in Britain <laughs> for obvious reasons is the European Arrest Warrant. Can you explain what the European Arrest Warrant is? The European Arrest Warrant is a, it's a funny story as well because um, at root it's a British initiative. It was then Home Secretary Jack Straw who actually suggested to have uh, some sort of a surrender agreement in place uh, at the European Union level. And the reason why he did that is actually not because he was some sort of federalist or pro-European <laughs> person or whatever. It was because he wanted to apply the logic of the internal market to the just and home affairs area. You might know that in internal markets, one of the ways that we have to trade is what we call the mutual recognition uh, principle. So basically, instead of making countries harmonize their procedures, mm. why not recognizing each other's uh, decisions on, okay. on, on extraditing people? If me as the UK issue a, um, a extradition warrant asking France mm. to surrender somebody, the French are obliged to, to approve it because it emanates from, from, from an authority that they recognize okay. as good as theirs. So basically the European Arrest Warrant helps Britain and other countries as well to get uh, rid actually of foreign criminals and to make sure that those who have con committed a crime in the, in, in the UK get uh, trial in the UK. Um, but alright, so what would happen to that kind of cooperation then if Britain left the EU? Would Brits no longer be extradited? Could Britain no longer get criminals from other EU member states? Funnily enough, Britain exports almost 10 times as many criminals as it imports. If the, if the UK left the European arrest warrants, Britain would have to negotiate either a bilateral agreement with mm. each and every member state, or it would have to go back to the Convention uh, on extradition from 1957. And there it took around 18 months to extradite uh, people, 
and there were many, many problems. And one of the main problems was with some sort of um, exceptions that countries could invoke. With the European arrest warrant, that stopped happening because it introduced a list of 32 offences that uh, give rise to extradition, to automatic uh, rights to extradite somebody, uh, one of them being terrorism. Mm. And um, it, also, it also got rid of another problem, which was a constitutional ban on extraditing your own nationals. So, okay. say for example, the British government wants a uh, long-sought uh, Italian terrorist Italy, before the European arrest warrant, could have indeed uh, refused to, to extradite this person just on the basis that he was Italian. And this, that's no longer possible. That's no longer possible for this uh, list of offences that are listed there, which are basically your most important, more sensitive uh, criminal um, okay. offences. Okay. And it has also reduced the time that it takes for, for people to be extradited. So we were talking that with the convention... Uh, had an average time of 18 months to extradite somebody. With the European arrest warrant, we're talking about 15 days. Okay, so... but still, it's not 18 <laughs> months, yeah. So Britain would probably go for bilateral agreements, is that what you think? There is a third option, Sophia. Uh, Britain could also conclude a, a EU-UK agreement, or okay. a surrender agreement, as we call it. Um, and many, many people have suggested that Britain could have something similar to what Norway and Iceland have. Right. How does it work with Norway right now then? So Norway and Iceland have a um, surrender agreement with the EU, which is very similar to the European arrest warrant, but differs in some ways. Mm -hmm. And one of the main ways in which it differs is that it actually does not lift this constitutional ban that I was talking about before on extraditing your own nationals. So that's one of the problems that this, um, this agreement has. And then there is another problem, which is that it took five years to negotiate and the ratification of the European Parliament and the Member States mm -hmm. in the Council of Ministers has taken further eight years. So in that time, the UK would need to find an alternative solution uh, to keep on extraditing people. Mm -hmm. And that's, is that solution going to be, as we were saying before, going back to the 1957 Convention? Or is that solution going, going uh, to try to have bilateral agreements with member states, which would be equally difficult? Yeah. Because as we saw in, uh, in when the UK tried to opt back into some of the, of the Just a Home Affairs measures that uh, they, the government encountered a lot of resistance, mm -hmm. uh, some member states are very tired of the UK asking for things, so cherry-picking in this area. You mentioned earlier that the UK has actually been a quite active uh, country in shaping justice and home affairs. What is one of the areas that they've been most influential in? What would you say? Counterterrorism, definitely. The EU's counterterrorist strategy was the first ever counterterrorist strategy for the European Union, published in 2005. Mm -hmm. It's literally a copy of the UK strategy. It's, oh, wow. It has the same structure, it follows the same steps, um, it's very, very similar. The UK is also a leader in counter radicalization. Because they know, they, they have the experience, they have the tools, they work very much with police, they work very much with community leaders, so they know uh, a lot of things that they can actually insert into European Union policy. They are very good in aviation security and border control for obvious reasons. They are an island, so they, they need to be good on that. And then, because they are a credible partner, when they suggest a counter-terrorism um, measure, a lot of member states in Brussels would actually be happy to back it, knowing okay. that the UK it's uh, proposing it because they know that, that they are a credible partner, that they have experience, that they know what they are doing. So if the UK left, 
that would be a huge blow then to these kinds of corporations. Yes, it would be. It would be. It would be bad for the UK, but it would be bad for European Union as well. The UK has has always advocated for pan-European solutions mm. to security threats. They don't want to be attacked or whatever just because there is a security gap in other member states, which is another thing. But not every member state sees that in the same way. Um, so if the UK left the European Union, then we would be in a situation in which cooperation between member states uh, on security matters would probably be much more fragmented. So, you mentioned it earlier, the EU doesn't really have an FBI, but we do have Europol. Mm -hmm. um, let's talk about that agency for a little bit. What would happen to Europol if the UK left? You know, Europol is actually headed uh, right now by a Briton, and under British leadership, so to speak, it has become a very effective hub for collecting information and coordinating counterterrorism mm -hmm. and anti-crime operations all across uh, all across Europe. The UK was uh, part of a transatlantic action against dark markets, which are uh, markets in dangerous or illegal goods. And this had 17 people arrested and 180,000 euros seized. And then uh, the UK, in cooperation with the Netherlands, Germany and Australia, it's participating in a long-term project to dismantle an international money laundering syndicate. Okay. So these kind of things would lose a, a fundamental partner, mm -hmm. um, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then there will be people who tell me, but of course, Europol is not gonna is not gonna lose the UK because they cannot afford to lose the UK. Such a, a wide network of intelligence uh, all around the world and uh, policemen and all that. And of course, the, the UK could uh, could obtain a associated status uh, with Europol. What would that look like? It's basically an operational status. It would it would be a member of Europol kind of in the same way that it is a member now, mm -hmm. uh, but without any say on shaping what Europol uh, does or what the priorities are or okay. anything else. So yes, I mean, when there are people who say, obviously, other countries will not stop cooperating with the UK, no, other countries will not stop cooperating with the UK, nor would the UK want to stop cooperating with anybody, but the UK will not have any role in shaping what Europol is doing and where, where Europol is actually heading. And it would be the same for Eurojust. Something that has been in the debate in this country a lot is the European Public Prosecutor's Office. Could you talk a little bit about what a Brexit would mean for the UK's role with regard to that organization? Actually, neither a Brexit nor a Remain would mean anything for this organization because the UK has made it very clear that it's not going to participate in the European Public Prosecutor when and if a European public prosecutor is established, the UK would not be part of it because uh, the EPPO would be established on what we call enhanced cooperation. So it would only be a group of countries mm. um, participating in it where those who do not wish to be uh, part of it uh, would not be forced to. Maybe one final question. Last week when I was talking to Simon Tilford, we were talking about the fact that the EU would become more protectionist and maybe a bit less liberal if the UK were to leave. How do you think justice and home affairs priorities would change without the UK to influence them? I think in a, in a rather counterintuitive way, justice and home affairs would probably become more fragmented. Mm. And that's because, as I was saying, the UK acts as a glue for countries to actually take a common action on security stuff in particular. Then there will be another area uh, which I think would be affected uh, by a Brexit, uh, which is the balancing between privacy and security. I think that a Europe with the, without the UK would lean naturally towards Germany and other member states who are much more preoccupied about privacy. Mm. And that would probably help 
complicate it even further, uh, transatlantic relations on the issue. So I think that would be one of the one of the areas where where I guess some of us feel would, would change if there is a Brexit. Um, and also there would be another consequence for the UK itself, which is that as we know, in order to trade data with the European Union, a country needs to be deemed as having an adequate protection mm. uh, for personal data. Who knows whether Britain would be considered as a country that does not offer an adequate level of protection, which would have, which would impede the access of British firms into the digital single markets and would impede a lot of operations uh, that require uh, transfer of data in between in between countries, which basically in this in the year 2016 are the majority of them. Thank you very much, Camino. Next week, uh, I will be joined by Agata Gustinska-Jakubowska to discuss the consequences of Brexit on EU institutions. You can also listen to a previous episode with Simon Tilford in which we talk about the consequences of Brexit for EU economic policy. And just to remind our listeners, the policy brief, The EU Without Britain, Unleashed or Undone, is available on the CER website, cer.org.uk.